Well, good morning to you all. I am delighted to be with you, and I'm honored to deliver the Fritas Lecture this morning. I give thanks to Dr. Jim Hampton and my new, maybe colleagues and friends here. Um, it is a gift and a joy to enter a new community. And so today, I especially thank you for the nice weather. I'm from New England, please remember that. We live in uncertain times, as our prayer this morning outlined for us. In some ways, every era can make this claim. Yet there are particular factors that accentuate the visceral uncertainty in our historical location. Here are some examples. We have unprecedented amount of information at our fingertips. You know those treasured sets of Encyclopedia Britannica in our homes? Forever replaced by the omniscient Google. On the one hand, it's overwhelming to us, isn't it, to try and work our way through this amount of information to which we have access? And on the other hand, the algorithms that are built into Google and our social media feeds determine what information actually appeals to our interests, maybe even reducing our access to information. Generational outlooks on the future are uncertain. Even in a strong economy, earnings for rising generations are projected to be lower than those of older generations. How many of the degrees and jobs that we train for actually won't even exist in the future? Long-standing industries face an uncertain future. From healthcare to retail to computing to television, industries experience are experiencing disruption. Disruption based on changes in technology, disruption based on demographic shifts, Disruption based on innovation. Disruption that's making stable in industries unstable. It's safe for me to assume that among you know, many among you know that higher education is a disrupted industry and our future is uncertain. The church landscape in the United States is uncertain, depending certainly on your region and your tradition from which you come. We're experiencing decline in people and decline in giving. Our future is uncertain. A missionary sending United States is receiving missionaries from around the world. And I don't have to go on very long to say that people's personal lives, our lives, demonstrate particular uncertainties. There's a marked increase in anxiety and depression, especially among rising generations. Therapeutic services are skyrocketing. Addiction plagues families. I live in New Hampshire, and we have been significantly hit by the opioid epidemic, especially among 20-year-olds. We have less natural communities to which we belong, and we are lonely. We live in uncertain times, and I haven't even mentioned the uncertainties that are today's headlines, the looming effects of climate change, a challenging political environment, and yes, coronavirus. Enough said. When we go through extended periods of uncertainty, 
We might experience God as disinterested, distant. We might actually experience God's silence as absence. Uncertainty uncertainty also has implications on our relationships with one another. Uncertainty is fertile ground for a scarcity mentality and self-preservation, which breed competition and hostility. How is the church to respond in uncertain times? We could offer assurance by describing God as sovereign and providentially working all things for good. Or Christ as a high priest who is continually interceding on our behalf. Or we could talk about the Spirit's liberating power that brings freedom. Such declarations emphasize God's faithfulness on certain times, yes. But as words, they can feel abstract and not penetrate the depths of our uncertainty. Our pastoral care impulse reminds us that uncertainty originates in the affective rather than in the cognitive and is accompanied by feelings that are frequently visceral. So before rushing to our rational affirmations, God is faithful, Could we pay attention and pause for a moment to pay attention to the emotions? What does uncertainty feel like? Feels like anxiety, that we're overwhelmed, confused, worried, insecure. It's like having vertigo, and the room is spinning, and all you want to do is grab onto something in order to gain some stability, to slow things down. Uncertainty uncertainty feels like fear. We're scared. We feel weak, helpless, even alienated. It's like walking into a room in the dark with an acute sense of danger and unable to see what is ahead. Uncertainty also feels like despair. We're discouraged. We feel insignificant, rejected, powerless. Despair feels like being weighted down. There's a weight attached to your body pulling you, and we find ourselves paralyzed, unable to resist. How will the church proclaim God's faithfulness in uncertain times amid the accompanying feelings, the emotions of anxiety, fear, and despair? Ecclesiology is the area of theology concerned with the church's nature, who are we, and function, what do we do? When we walk into a church, we don't enter a heavenly entity apart from the created order. Churches exist in time and space. The early churches resisted equating the church with a specific ethnic group, nation, or socioeconomic class. They believed that Christ established the church to continue his ministry through the Spirit and as his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Therefore, in the 4th century, or by the 4th century, the church's Catholicity, or universality, became one of the four marks in the Nicene Creed. Inherent to declaring the church's universality is an affirmation of the importance of the local church. The local church is critical You see, the early church councils were guided by Paul's declarations about the nature of the church. 
They knew that every declaration was followed by a call to make real who we are. We are members of a household, therefore, we should overcome the social barriers between us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, therefore, we need to act in ways that host the Spirit among us. We are a body, therefore, we work to be a unit, paying close attention to those we perceive as less important. The local church is called to embody who we are. When Christ followers gather in uncertain times, we can describe God's faithfulness. But what would it mean if we embodied God's faithfulness to one another and to the world? To embody something is to give tangible form, visible, living expression to the faith that we possess. Embodiment situates us in the affective, in our experiences, our emotions, and our dispositions. To embody God's faithfulness is to become living examples in our practices, our actions, our words, in times of uncertainty. And we quickly realize that the local church is God's brilliant idea for an embodied people. Declaring God's faithfulness will require our family, remembering our family story and rooting our anxiety, our fear, our despair in a narrative that extends far beyond our present experiences. We need to remember and embody this memory in tangible forms, in living expressions of God's faithfulness in uncertain times. So I offer you this morning three avenues by which our churches, being us, might embody memory. First, we embody memory as we discover our collective identity. That long story in Nehemiah 8 with all those wonderful names. We find people living in uncertain times. The Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah take place after Babylon conquers Judah, and large numbers of Jerusalem citizens are sent into exile. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, along with the temple, are destroyed. The Israelites live as refugees in Babylon for 60 to 70 years. This means that an entire generation lived in exile. Imagine the implications on their embodied memory. They had no access to the temple. They could not participate in annual feasts. There was no way to make sacrifices, and they did not hear the reading of the law of Moses, likely a portion of the Torah. It should be of no surprise to us, then, that their memory waned. They forgot. But God remembers. The Persians conquer the Babylonians, and Cyrus, the Persian king, declares that it's time for these refugees among them to return to Jerusalem. The book of Ezra describes phase one of this return and the rebuilding of the temple. And Nehemiah is phase two, where the people return to build the wall. All of this is accomplished when we arrive at Nehemiah 8. And now it's time to reinstitute the practice of reading the Law of Moses. 
As the scenes opened, all, as the scene opens, all are gathered. They're in the square. It includes women and children because this is a momentous occasion. I imagine the excitement is palpable, and even the squirmiest kid among them feels the anticipation. Ezra stands high on this prepared platform with Nehemiah and the Levites, and before an expectant crowd, Ezra declares the praise of God to the great God, followed by a thunderous roar from God's people. Amen, amen, they declare. They immediately bow down, press their faces to the ground in response to God's faithfulness. And the leaders read from the law of Moses, and the Levites move intentionally around the crowd, verse 8, making it clear and giving it meaning so that the people could understand what was read. What is it that they just discovered? Their history, their collective identity as God's people, their memory is reinstated. The immediate response is weeping, yes, and mourning. And surely this comes from the shame and guilt that's due to their forgetfulness, their unfaithfulness. They had not fulfilled the law's requirements. Yet I wonder in that weeping that there also might have been an expression of grief because they had lost their collective identity and they felt the pain of the separation from themselves. An entire generation displaced. Imagine the anxiety, the confusion. Where is our God and the feelings of insecurity that was bred into their generational map? Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Levites, they quickly intervene and they declare a celebration because what matters today, they said, is that you have discovered, we have rediscovered our collective identity. What matters at this moment is the experience of gaining stability, even in our present uncertainty. He says to them, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send them to those who have nothing prepared because everybody needs to be there. This day is holy to our Lord. My dad's side of the family, the Galgays, they take our lineage very seriously. Both of my grandparents are from an Irish immigrant heritage and, like many others, overcame significant obstacles to provide a new life for their families. So my childhood was permeated with stories about my grandparents, and they were models to us. What we know about being a Galgay is two things. We work hard and we love hard. But we've discovered a problem. The children of my generation, so my children and their cousins, they hadn't met these grandparents, and they're unfamiliar with our family stories. Faithful to our good Irish roots and in good Irish form, we gather for a weekend of storytelling, most of which was true, with likely a little bit of exaggerated folklore, but at this point, who cares? Weeks later, my then six-year-old daughter, Annie, she comes home from school with a drawing that was curiously signed, Annie Galgay. Galgay is not her last name. 
for the next two months, every math page, vocabulary test, piece of artwork, and even her trombone practice sheet proudly displayed the Galgay name. You see, Annie discovered who she was, a Galgay. This was a collective identity discovery. She was part of a story larger than herself, and it formed her as it had formed us. So it is with God's people in Nehemiah 8. They discovered who they were as God's people, and we too are God's people. Is it our experience to discover our collective identity? Is that common to us, to have a collective identity discovery? When we say the word identity, we often use it in a short, with a shorthand definition. It's knowing who I am. It actually implies separation from others in order to make sense of self. In the field of psychology, we have a long history of studying identity through the lens of self with a focus on individuation. In recent decades, developmental psychologists have more intentionally sought to study and delineate two intertwined aspects of identity, independence and our interdependence. Who I am is negotiated with others. Who I am is negotiated with others. Healthy identity formation includes discovering ourselves with others. We have collective identities. You know, someday, many of you who are students, I hope will return back here to Asbury for a reunion. Maybe you've been to a reunion or a homecoming before, and you remember that awkward moment when you see someone you know and you hope the recall button in your brain triggers so that you can remember your name and quickly the awkwardness is a handshake and the awkwardness is filled with remember when moments. Remember when we took that class? Remember that professor? Remember life's journeys and life's challenges that we experienced together then? And all of a sudden, as we remember the years of life fade, and the connection between us holds us. You feel your collective identity. When we remember like this, it's as if a thread weaves through us and draws us together because collective identity is embodied right then. Much of the Christian identity I hear about emphasizes not our collective selves, but our individual relationship with God. This is actually not who we are. Yes, we do encounter Christ personally, don't mishear me, but to be a Christian is to join with others who make the same profession of faith. In his 1953 publication, The Misunderstanding of Church, Emil Brunner warns Protestants of their tendency to, quote, be fundamentally individualistic in our conception of church. And we can treat church as an external support to faith. 
And put that now in our society, where consuming is a condition. It's the way in which we see and interpret the world. And it can be the way that we see and interpret and talk about the faith. Bruner says, The faithful are bound to each other through their common sharing in Christ and in the Spirit. Christian actually doesn't exist in the singular. We are an ecclesial people who share a collective identity. Uncertainty causes anxiety. We feel overwhelmed, confused, worried, insecure. It's like vertigo. The world is spinning, and we're in search of something to provide stability. And as we discover we are God's people, not once, but over and over again, in our uncertain lives, we find comfort. We find stability in the presence of others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, there's no greater comfort than the presence of my brothers and sisters in Christ. This is embodied presence, and it stabilizes us. And our anxiety has an opportunity to transform into peace. And we gain confidence in the face of an uncertain world. And we do so with our family. We embody memory as we discover our collective identity, like the Israelites and like Annie Galgay. Our churches become tangible forms of peace. Second, we embody memories we practice remembering. Let's go back to Nehemiah 8. The Israelites gather for another day and they discover an important story. Verse 14, they found written in the law that the Lord commanded Moses that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during a festival in the seventh month. They learn that it's time for the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, a seven-day festival in which the Israelites live in temporary shelters to commemorate God bringing them out of Egypt. So they scatter in search of needed materials to make these shelters called booths or tents. They lay branches across the top of them. And the branches are supposed to create little openings which will expose the sky so that when they're sleeping here, and they gaze through those branches at the stars at night, it will remind them of God's faithfulness to God's people when they wandered in the wilderness. You see, amid the fears of life and what life is going to be, these Israelites immediately are wrapped into their family story. And it's a story that's greater than this moment in time. When we practice remembering we practice remembering that God was faithful in the past. The account here, interestingly, is actually more than just duplication. They did something at this celebration because some of the details that we find in Nehemiah 8 are not in the description in Leviticus 23. They practice remembering by actually becoming actors in the story. They embodied memory of God's, fa- God's past faithfulness by making and building new memories together. The Israelites are repeatedly called in the Old Testament to remember, 
Deuteronomy 5.15, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with his mighty hand and outstretched arm. Listen to this part. Therefore, observe the Sabbath. It's a remembering practice. Every week, we are to embody remembering God's faithfulness as we practice the Sabbath. Sabbath. I'm on an airplane flying to, from Boston to North Carolina to speak at a pastor's conference. It sounds benign, except for the fact that there's a hurricane that's about to hit land in about a day, and I am seven months pregnant. Something about this scene is not a good idea. We were in one of those old propeller prop planes, you remember those, that bounce over the universe? Well, then you go ahead and put it in a hurricane, and I should probably tell you I really don't much like flying to begin with. We're about to land. I can see the, land, the ground before us. The plane is descending. There's the runway. And all of a sudden, that silly pilot takes a left-hand turn, and we are aiming right out into the ocean. You've seen what it looks like when a hurricane is coming. The sky is dark and gray, and the clouds are thick, and there we are, bouncing in that plane. I begin to pray. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord, I've been to seminary at this point, and that's what I have? Now I lay me down to sleep? I pray the Lord my soul to keep? If I should die before I wait, this is a terrible prayer. But what I remembered at that moment wasn't cognitive. It wasn't something that I could reduce to some formula that made sense rationally. I was repeating something that was a cross-stitch on my wall with this really ugly blue frame. It was part of my embodied experience as a child. That's what came to mind in the middle of my fear. You see, our fear is met, embodied. And our fear and the practice of, our mem of, our, of remembering needs to be embodied. Listen to how remembering plays out in Psalm 85. The psalmist is declaring that, that he lives in uncertain times and by implication is wondering if God has abandoned him. Verse 4, restore us again, God our Savior, put, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people might rejoice in you? Show your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us salvation. The psalmist, then, is remembering in this moment of fear, affective. Look how the psalmist reiterates God's past faithfulness, the practice of remembering. You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortune of Jacob. These were not the psalmist's experience. It's the family history the practice of remembering God's past faithfulness. You forgave the iniquity of your people and you covered their sins. You set aside your wrath and you turned to fierce anger. And what does this evoke? From fear, there's courage. Verse 8, I will listen to what the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants. But let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him that the glory may dwell in his land. His fear transforms to courage. 
Can we acknowledge that when we fear, we actually resist remembering? You see, fear puts us in that fight or flight alert, that we're only paying attention in that dark room. We're only paying attention to the future, not to the past. And now put us in a world with advanced technology and a rapid pace of change. There's good things related to that, robotic arms that help in intricate surgeries, alternative energy sources, developing world communication processes, and a result of the rapid pace of change is that we become bound to what is ahead. FOMO, the fear of missing out. And so we cling to our social media because we aren't sure if we'll still exist, if we are missed in, our, in a digital space. We have a fear of being forgotten. Our memory is short-circuited. Remembering is actually not natural for us right now. I'll complicate that a bit more to say we have a cloudy memory with even our history. How do we make room for more experiences in history than our own. Whose history are we repeating? It's tempting then to allow technology's alluring rapid pace to turn us forward to the future and ignore the past. We could just decide to numb our fear in Netflix or live in Snapchat where our history dissolves in 24 hours. When life's uncertainty evokes fear and God appears silent or absent and we feel weak, we feel helpless, we feel alienated, like we're walking alone in a dark house with an acute sense of danger and unable to see what is ahead, God's people must choose to practice remembering. Together we declare God's deliverance of the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt when we aren't experiencing deliverance. Together, we read of the mercy God had for the Ninevites when we aren't experiencing God's mercy. Together, we study God's promises. We can't see how those promises could possibly be true. Together, we rejoice in Christ's healing of the bleeding woman when healing is not here. Together, we celebrate Christ's resurrection with Mary. But we do it when there's no evidence of redemption. Together we can sing, great is thy faithfulness, even when those experiences are not ours. This is embodied memory. Remembering God's past faithfulness together with our people. So like the psalmist, our fear can transform into courage. Note the ending in Nehemiah 8, verse 17. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua of Nun until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated like this, and their emotion, joy, was great. Might it even be possible in our times of uncertainty, in our times of fear, that our fear might transform into joy? when we embody remembering God's past faithfulness. We embody memory as we discover our collective identity, 
as we practice remembering God's past faithfulness and we embody memory in our imaginations. Nehemiah 8. What was it like for the Israelites to lie in their newly constructed tents and gaze at the stars? They have discovered who they are and they've heard family stories. I wonder what other stories they were rehearsing at that time. Were there older people in the community that were piecing together fragments of the story told long ago? And as they practice remembering, how do you think those stories shaped what they imagined for their future and their own moment of un in uncertain times? Authors Warren Brown and Brad Strawn, in a book, The Physical Nature of Christian Life, they draw from research in um, neuroscience and psychology to help us understand how embodied peoples change. They describe the ways in which stories literally shape the pathways of our brains. They say this. When we hear a story we imaginatively simulate the behavior being narrated. The process of understanding the actions of persons in the story requires that the system of our brain that control our own behavior engage in a process of internally stimulating the actions of the story. Our brains literally put us in a narrative's action. We have embodied experiences when we make sense of a story. And we see ourselves as participants. Warren and Brown go on to argue that stories, and I quote, regulate imagination with respect to what is possible, what is likely to happen, what can and what should be accomplished. Philosopher Paul Ricoeur describes imagination as the highest human quality that holds the power to change both human beings and subsequently the world in which we inhabit. You see, our imaginations, when they're touched, our will will follow. Wealth and fame are among the predominant narratives in our society. Looking for fame, young people will hold to the hope that their latest TikTok video might just go viral. Young adults search, maybe against the odds, for lucrative jobs. But as we grow older, life's uncertainties wash our lives like waves hitting the shore. Wealth and fame narratives are simply not large enough to hold us in times of uncertainty. And the result will be despair, feeling discouraged, insignificant, Rejected, powerless, despair is like having a weight tied to your body, pulling us down, and we find ourselves paralyzed, unable to resist. On the heels of Ash Wednesday, we are reminded of our, fin of our finitude and our dependence. From dust we come, and to dust we shall return. This practice is not a declaration, though, of our insignificance, or that we are small. It does not call us to despair 
Instead, it's a practice that draws us into a larger narrative beyond ourselves. Jan Richardson captures this in her poem, Blessing of the Dust. I quote, all those days you feel like dust, like dirt, as if you all, as if you all, I'm sorry, as if you all had to turn, all you had to do was turn and face the wind and the, be scattered to the four corners or swept away by the smallest breath as insubstantial? Did you not know what the Holy One can do with dust? This is the narrative that holds us amid despair's weight as our brains simulate the story and we become actors in a moment outside of ourselves. And what happens? Our imagination is ignited. And despair has the opportunity to transform to hope because we embodied memory. The Bible is full of characters propelled by imagination. Imagination enabled Noah to build an ark. Imagination was Sarai's giggle at the thought of having a baby in her old age. Imagination freed Mo Moses to believe God and to lower his staff in order to part the sea. Imagination led Jonah, postfish, to declare God's forgiveness to his enemies. Imagination sustained Queen Esther as she took a risk and asked the king to save her people. Imagination drove John the Baptist to prepare the way for someone greater. Imagination allowed Mary to believe she would give birth to a savior. Developing our collective imagination is critical to the Christian faith. And imagination releases us from despair because we can see more than our present moment. But imagination requires an embodied memory in order to feel it. There's a small town forest near my home, and in it there are many well-marked trails. They wind for miles and even cross adjacent town lines. Crowded trees shade the trails, making it difficult for us to see what's in the distance. In the middle of that lush environment, the only place that breaks open is when you reach a large marshy area, home to small tadpoles and gross snakes. The murky water makes a very effective breeding ground for mosquitoes. At some point, this area was dry and it was filled with flourishing trees. But now, only tall, dead trunks extend across the marsh and reach up to the sky. These lifeless trees that are scattered in a marsh, they didn't survive uncertain times. As I look up, there are giant nests built by blue herons, sitting atop dead tree trunks. Blue herons are migrating birds, and they return to the same nest year after year. You see, the tree's height provides needed protection from the dangers below. It doesn't actually look like these thin, dead trunks would provide protection 
or that they would survive the harsh winds of, and, and massive amounts of snow in New England. But their dead roots are deep enough to keep them in place. The blue herons have found a good spot to care for their young, so they keep coming back. Nestled in high nests, extending above the marsh, eggs hatch, and I can hear new life squawking loudly. It's quite a sight to see these birds safely perched high up in the sky on dead trees. The nest provides stability in an uncertain marshy world. Rising high above the forest, the birds, they have a wide view. They can look beyond their present moment and imagine their futures. In the same way, churches, local gatherings of God's people, can embody memory that lifts us up out of the murky waters of despair where we can sit together on dead trees in uncertain times. We need embodied memory. We need an embodied memory so we can discover again and again our collective identity. We need embodied memory where we practice remembering God's faithfulness in the past. And we need embodied memory that will ignite our imaginations, that can see beyond the possibility of right now. Yet our memories are easily distracted, aren't they? Throughout the Old Testament, God's people repeatedly forget, as do we. And yet over and over, God remembers. God's memory is always tied to God's redemptive action. When God remembers, God delivers, God restores, God reveals, God saves. Because God remembers, God came to us embodied in Jesus Christ so that Christ's church can embody memory to give tangible form and living expression of God's faithfulness. And when we do, anxiety's vertigo finds peace, and fear's dark room gains courage, and despair's weight transforms miraculously into hope. Thanks be to our God who remembers. Amen.